Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is David French. David's a senior writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, an attorney concentrating his practice in constitutional law and the law of armed conflict, and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's the author or co-author of a number of books, including most recently the number one New York Times bestselling, Rise of ISIS, A Threat We Can't Ignore. He's been on the podcast a couple of times. I always enjoy talking with him. And I wanted to talk with him about something he wrote yesterday. It's a timely piece addressing the Roy Moore controversy in Alabama. It's called The Enduring Appeal of Creepy Christianity and Deals with the Desire for Certainty in an Uncertain World and the Terrible Results It Yields. I had a great conversation with him about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you David French. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Oh, man, it's always a pleasure. I always find our conversations really stimulating. And our mutual friend, Mark Oppenheimer, says hello. Uh, he was, I, do, I was doing another podcast just before this, and he will like chime in on Facebook Live and like make comments. And so we were, we were fondly remembering that event in New York where we made your acquaintance on the free speech. Oh, thing. yes. That was a great event. It, it was for me. Yes. Well, I'm sure he's, li- he, maybe he's listening. Hi, Mark. Yeah, right. Exactly. He probably will listen to this. Um, so, <laughs> hey, I got, I've heard so much response to your piece about, um, that you just wrote. I think it came out yesterday, yesterday, right? Um, and this mm-hmm. is all about the title is forget, the enduring appeal of creepy Christianity. The desire for certainty in an uncertain world yields terrible, terrible results. And you're kind of right talking about this sort of defense of Roy Moore and, 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 and this strange. Well, I'm not- Strange. I'm explaining. Yeah, 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 explaining the defense of. Yes. Uh huh. By the way, he has 12 hours for Sean Hannity. I think (laughs) Hannity said yesterday. It's very interesting because I'm going to call this the more Putin defense. Well, I don't remember it. Well, there you go. Same thing with with Trump. He says he doesn't recall. He doesn't think he had a part in any of this. And what am I going to say? Putin said it. If he he doesn't have a part in it, then. (laughs) Well, I mean. He, except because you know, I I may have dated some young ladies. Uh, not I didn't generally date teenagers when I was in my mid thirties. Oh my goodness, it's 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 so dispiriting. But you talk about in the piece how basically Christianity faces two perennial challenges. You know, at least in contemporary society, and this probably goes back older than this, but in certain forms. But one is uh, this attempt to be relevant to the world, right? And, and actually to water down everything particular about the faith in order to gain cultural acceptance. And the other is, in light of uncertainty, anxiety, to uh, rather than sort of have faith as a resource amidst the anxiety, to use it to try to legalistically suppress the anxiety. Like if we can just, yes. if we can just get the right ideas or the right practices and perform them the right way, and the right people are let in, and, and, and this sort of thing, we defend everything at all costs, then, then we'll feel less anxious or have some right. sense of control. It's sort of, it's like a, it's a process. And, and so the process begins as so many bad processes begin with fear. So you're a, you're a Christian, you're, let's say you're an evangelical Christian family and you're about to have children and, uh, and you think, I want to raise godly children. How can I guarantee that I raise godly children? How can I guarantee that they 
are um, they don't turn to the left or the right, that they are, you know, that they follow the, the, the path. And there's an enormous amount of fear of the world. And so, you know, even beginning from from baby books, you'll you'll have Christian authors putting out, well, if you do this kind of sleep schedule and you teach them, you know, and you let them cry it out in their crib and you teach them hand signals when they're wanting something, well, then you're setting them on the path. And then you you move in and they say, well, okay, well, then we're moving into education. Well, let's I have these ideas about how you can control the education of your children. And so you control the education of your children. And then they get to, well, how can I make sure they marry a godly person? Well, then here are all these 19 steps to making sure that your child marries a godly person. And and people, you know, millions of people have sort of dipped their toe in these waters. You know, like they'll read these books and they'll say they'll take the good and they'll reject the bad and just view it as one piece of helpful advice. But a lot of people gravitate. They wrap both arms around it. And and it almost always comes from through charismatic guys, um, you know, men who have written books or author study series and and they gather followers. And this is true in the purely um, sort of purely religious part of Christianity. And it's also true in the political part of Christianity as well. I mean, these guys are saying, if we follow these seven steps, we're going to have a godly America again, you know. And so. And then what this creates are subcultures that are rife, ripe for exploitation and abuse and foster a, a sense of loyalty at all costs um, and us against the world mentality. And that's that's what I was calling the rise of creepy Christianity. Um, and that, so that's kind of the process. And do you think it's interesting? Like, I, I don't know if it's ironic, because every time I ever say ironic, I'm always like, well, is it coincidence or is it just interesting? I'm always like, you know. Is it really ironic? But you look at like the part of the things that one of the things that led to the rise of evangelical Christianity was, I mean, the highest point of church attendance in this country was the early 60s, 1960s. And then the mainline churches went into decline largely because they sort of replaced spirituality and traditional religious themes with political stuff, right? Everything was Vietnam or, or, you know, protest movements, all these things. Like, and so people, some sociologists argue that's a contributing factor. People want a religious religion, and so they. But then the same things happen in evangelicalism. <laughs> it, it, it's if they've done it with on the right wing side. It, it's sort of oblivious to kind of the reason for the secret of their own success in late twentieth century right. America. Right, right. Well, and and I I think they're completely unaware uh, of the problem because you know as we often as we often do we think that especially when we live in a community we think that everyone thinks like we think. And so um, I think what's happening often is some of these these churches, particularly these more extreme churches, are losing sight of the fact that, you know, a, a huge part of our mission isn't uh, electing, say, Roy Moore to be Senate senator. It's helping that single mom across the street from the church. It's reaching out and sharing the gospel with struggling kids at the local high school. It's, you know, so um, but in this era of negative partisanship. An extreme and hyperpolarization. Uh, we've we've really raised the the uh, stakes of political combat to almost like apocalyptic levels, so that you know people are are compromising more than they ever thought they would ever compromise ever for the sake of electing a junior senator <laughs> to fulfill half a term uh, to to the Senate. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting. The the, uh, the and it's funny too that like this kind of. Um Somebody said, somebody said, uh, 
I think I heard some reporter saying that, or no, it's actually a friend from Alabama told me this, that somebody said, well, you know, don't worry. Um, this big Alabama political guy who's apparently a real, much more con- you know, respected conservative mm-hmm. said, well, don't worry, he's going to be whispering into Roy's ear. I was like, well, that worked out well with the presidential yeah. campaign. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, if we know one thing from Roy Moore's political career, Roy Moore does what Roy Moore wants to do. It's just like with Donald Trump. Donald Trump does what Donald Trump wants to do. And so, you know, all this argument that, well, you know, you're going to vote for him and he's going to fall in line with the rest of Republicans. No, he's going to march to the beat of his own drummer like he always has. But but again, you know, going back to this this um, concept I, t- I was talking about at the beginning, it's hard to overstate how much all of this is fear-based thinking, how much all of it is. And it's fear-based thinking combined with putting faith in particular men. And, and those kind of environments lead to terrible decision-making, and then in extreme circumstances, they actually lend themselves to abuse um, and they lend themselves to a culture that covers up abuse or excuses abuse because the success of the great man, the success of the leader becomes more important than anything else. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, some of the most toxic environments for young women, I'm not saying the Roy Moore, the Roy Moore situation seems to be a little bit different. He seems to have been a a, a free agent in his 30s who was dating whoever he wanted to date and is now being uh, supported by this network. But there are important people in these this network, these extremist Christian networks that got away with abusing women for years, for years. Uh, and the burden on the on the victim was extraordinary. Because if they come forward and they make a claim, they don't they don't only bring down the great man, so to speak. They also destroy a movement, a way of life that a lot of these families have and, and they die a social death, right? Like there's oh. a sense in which you kind of you know, if I if I'm at, like my world is so contingent on this group, and if I kill the group, I, I kill my own. This is so hard too. Like when a pastor's marriage falls apart, like you know, it, even if it's not, it, not an abusive situation, it, it, but just like. You know, if you if you have an affair or your wife has an affair or something and you're an accountant Monday, I mean, you know, maybe one buddy at work, the rest of your life, your steady golf game can probably continue. But when it happens to somebody in, in professional religious life, you just lost your whole world to recover from the mm-hmm. devastation of the marriage. You know, I mean, it's just a, it's a really difficult situation. Likewise, for the victim, if I go and say I was taken advantage of maybe, well, I, my whole social world that has su- supported me, ironically, in, co- in talking about the suffering, I'll lose what I thought is the best resource to process suffering. <laughs> well, think about this, and they'll think, um, I'll destroy my parents as well. So you go to these parents who have built their lives around this leader. And I, I, I can think of a couple and spe- couple specific examples. And, it, and, and really, you know, I think for listeners who are not familiar with this world, they don't understand how important some of these leaders can be and their teachings can be to the daily life of daily life of these families. I mean, I have been I have been connected with people in the past who who uh, literally, you know, re- require their kids to read constantly um, the works and workbooks and study books of these leaders. They pattern their Bible studies around the recommended like um, Bill Gothard. Pro- yes. My wife was raised in the Gothardite whole thing. She actually was a missionary for a couple of years right after high school in Moscow in an orphanage. And she would serve Bill Gothard his Christmas uh, meal. And that's the only time Bill ever wore not a suit. He wore a red sweater and like cas- casual pants, like his like, you know, <laughs> slacks. 
But um, yeah, I mean, like she has several friends who were victims of some of that predatory behavior. Um, and and she would say it's funny because my mother in law has has written about. I mean, she's a writer and she's written some about the damage of that movement. And every she would echo everything you're saying. I actually interviewed her for the podcast because she had a new novel come out and like. She was talking about everything you're saying in this piece. Control. Uh, I got pregnant young. The world was scared. Like they offered us. I mean, it, 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 like you describe it to a T. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I've been an evangelical Christian my entire life and you cannot be an evangelical living in this world and you're in, in aware of the world and not have brushes or encounters with this, th- that side of Christianity because it's always there beckoning you. And it's often very, very powerful. I mean, very, very popular. And it's also often accompanied by this pressure that says, well, if you really want to know the Lord, if you really want to serve Jesus, if you really are truly committed, well, then this is the way. This is the path. And and what they often end up doing is sort of communicating to their followers this view that, well, you're special. You are willing to give up more for Jesus. You are willing to follow his teachings not just the the words of the Bible itself, but all of the implications of the words of the Bible that the leader articulates, and it's incredibly seductive. And think about these these think about if you're a parent and you put your daughter into that situation, the guilt the guilt that you would feel once you uh, was all exposed, the emptiness, the how shattered it would be, and then you have the daughter who knows that it would shatter everything in the family who experiences these things. Yeah. I mean, that, that think about that pressure that, think about that and, and think about how vulnerable uh, those people are. It's, it's, it's so sad. It is so sad. It's funny. I have a friend who wrote this book called the title is great, right? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It sounds yeah. like the movement, the trends you're describing, it's like, Jesus plus nothing. What the hell you got with that? Yeah, <laughs> you need Jesus plus this program, this project. You know, you need this belief in this doctrine of these things. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is is true, and it's it's interesting because we're on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and I often think that most American evangelicals would have a lot more sympathies with the kind of superstitious medievalism than with Luther. <laughs> and I mean, some of this is just like in any religious movement, right? Where we're like, like the enlightened stuff can devolve into folk religion. And I think this is what happens. And then it's like Lex Arende, Lex Crenae, right? The rule of prayer becomes a real faith. Then the folk religion starts to travel up and you start teaching the folk religion. <laughs> but I mean, that's, you know, I mean, because you think about like the Luther's fear of the kind of insecurity and, and legalism and manipulation. Uh, but you know, evangelicals love like superstitious, the prayer of Jabez, the kind of this, this the therapeutic, stuff, yeah, yeah. This, the relics, the saints, all you know, the, carried to an extreme. I mean, it's weird uh, how five hundred years later, they they don't seem quite classically Protestant. <laughs> well, you know, it's the world is fallen, and there's a lot of it that's scary. I mean, and a lot of uncertainty and. Especially when you have children and you have this 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 baby and you love you cannot you experience a kind of love you've never experienced before in your life and accompanying with that often is <gasps> this the responsibility that I feel the 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 last thing I want is this precious child that I love more than anything else 
to fall away from the faith and to fall away from, you know, fall away from eternity. And and so then you think, well, how can I make sure? How can I make sure that everything's going to be okay? And 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 there's multi-billion-dollar industries <laughs> that are catered around that. And and you know, I think of things like, um, you know, I, I don't know if you remember uh, the craze. You might be uh, that it might not have touched you guys up where you are now, but like Baby Wise, um, uh, a book that was very very rigorously prescribing exactly how you you treat an infant, and that there's like one godly way of treating an infant. <laughs> Um, who wrote this and, book? You know, I forget who is the author of it. Um, but people who took it to the extreme actually ended up hurting their children physically um, because it 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 uh, it took a um, baby wise uh, Gary Ezzo. Um, what does Gary Ezzo know? <laughs> yeah, it was. But, you know, it was like one of these things. And, and I don't want to pick on him too much, but uh, and I don't know if this was his intention, but it ended up becoming a um, a sensation in the Christian world, uh, just an absolute sensation. And there, there was a pressure in Christ, some Christian families that if you weren't doing the baby wise method, that you were hurting your kids, that you weren't being godly parents. And, I, you know, that may not have been their their intention at all. Um, but it was absolutely, uh, it was absolutely something that was, you know, thrown at parents. And, and, and again, it preys on that notion, like, how do I set my baby up for success? And, and everyone's, you know, how many secular fads are there? There's secular fads with raising kids and all of this, but sometimes it can become a particularly toxic when it's attached to a religious idea. Yeah. And I, you know, you're in a denomination that is sort of, I would say, in general, on the sophisticated end of the evangelical spectrum, reformed much, you know, classically, theologically, just more reflective. You know, I have a friend in a conservative reformed denomination, and the Westminster Standard is their thing, the Westminster Confession. He said one of his exemptions was, look, I think children who don't make an adult profession of faith should be allowed to receive communion. I won't practice it. Like, I I won't do the practice, but I just want to say, I, I think the confession's off on this, um, but I'll abide by the, our our church's discipline. He almost was brought up in heresy charges for the exemption. <laughs> so, so right, I mean, and this is for, so, and these are people that would agree with you about the about the sort of um, kind of creepy Christianity and 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 the anxiety and control issues that give birth to it, and yet. For all the sophistication, it's a different form of control, you know, like it, it's, and it, you know, it's the same thing in the main line. I mean, you know, when I was at Princeton Seminary, I saw, you know, the real heresy here is failure to use inclusive language at some point. That's the, you can believe anything you want theologically, but your pronouns, yeah. that's where you'd get run out on a rail, you know? Uh, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, we, when I was at law school, uh, we had a graduate school Christian fellowship, which was a, um, combination of all the Harvard graduate schools and professional schools, the, the evangelicals from all of them. So law school, business school, graduate school of arts and sciences. Um, and then we had the Harvard Divinity School and there would be like one evangelical <laughs> at the Harvard Divinity School. <laughs> and we would they would introduce themselves at the start of every meeting. Uh, it, and you know, you'd go around and introduce your school and where you're from, and we would give them like an ovation. <laughs> and the the atmosphere of intolerance that he described there was, you know, that they would describe there would be really amazing, and it would be things like, "Did you use a masculine pronoun to describe God?" You know, well, how dare you? 
Um, you can believe in reincarnation as a Christian, but don't you dare <laughs> use a masculine pronoun to describe God. Yeah. Um, when I was doing graduate work, uh, is after my MDiv at Princeton Seminary, I went and took most of my philosophy PhD seminars at, at in the university religion department. And I found for people that were whatever they were politically, but for people who were sort of on the more traditionalist end of Christianity, whether evangelicals or conservative theological mainline people, people felt like they had much more freedom of expression in the university religion department with Cornell West and Jeff Stout and these people. Like you could say, I mean, they were really, it was real intellectual freedom. It was real diversity at the seminary. Oftentimes there was much more uh, sensitivity to ideological stuff, <laughs> which is funny, you know, because the chair with the department was chaired by an atheist who used, yeah. uh, who used all these evangelical graduate uh, teaching assistants and stuff. It was, it was it's, Amazing. Funny, it's funny because Jeff Stout, this guy who's an atheist and he gave the Gifford lectures. One day we asked him at lunch, he would take us at lunch over his lectures. Jeff, like you read theology, but most of the theology you read is what we would call conservative. And Nicholas Walters or Carl Barras. Why? He's like, well, when I read liberal theology, I feel like I'm reading bad psychology, bad sociology, bad philosophy, or bad critical theory. And I'm arguably at the best university in the world. I can read good stuff. They're the best people in their field. So you're like, but when I read real theology, I get a different voice. There's lessons about idolatry in these things, you know, that are, you know, you can't just get it all from Iris Murdoch. And you, you know, and it's like, <laughs> it's just amazing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but he was a real intellectual. I mean, mm -hmm. in the truest sense of the word, you know, his atheism mm -hmm. um, didn't blind him to truth where he found it. Right, right, right. Well, you know, and gosh, I mean, I have I've met some atheists and have atheist friends who are among the most intellectually rigorous, kindest, most interesting and compassionate people you'll ever meet. Um, uh, unfortunately, I've also known atheists who are about the exact opposite of all of those things. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, if the ideology or the idea becomes an idol. Yeah. Then usually you're going to mistreat people wherever you are on the spectrum. Right. 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 Ab well, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think the thing I think that is getting so distressing to me, um, and again, speaking as a conservative evangelical, is it's getting pretty obvious that a lot of people that I have grown up around don't actually have the faith that they proclaim to have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, here, and here's what I mean by that. So, I mean, when I was in Sunday school, I was taught for a long time. I was taught, you know, the story of uh, Hezekiah, I mean, uh, Isaiah, Hezekiah and the Assyrian invasion and Hezekiah is being um, advised to seek Egypt's help. And I say, Isaiah says, don't go down to Egypt. By the way, we've, lo we've lost all the mainline Protestant listeners and Northeasters right here. We're talking Hezekiah. We're in the weeds. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's why we're explaining the Bible story instead of just saying Isaiah 31. Okay. <laughs> but, this, this is the inter ecumenical, um, inner political party Bible revival hour. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So the, the Isaiah says, don't look to Egypt, even though the, there's this huge mm -hmm. army bearing down on you. Uh, Jude, the kingdom of Judah is tiny. Um, and Egypt is this military superpower next door, and maybe they can ally with you and help you. He goes, no, no, don't look to Egypt. God will protect his people. And Hezekiah ultimately relied on God, and, and the Lord delivered the kingdom of Judah from the Assyrian invasion. It's an amazing Bible story. And my Bible study teachers, my, my Sunday school teachers, my, my Bible uh, teachers in college, pastors have always said, when God's people are under threat, rely on God. Yes. Rely on, trust God. God will protect his people. And, um, which is a great lesson. And it turns out that when the threat was named Hillary Clinton, 
and not Assyria. <laughs> People said, well, we got to go with Donald Trump or we'll lose the church. Yeah. The church will be destroyed. Like th- this is the kind of apocalyptic rhetoric you are hearing often. And then, you know, it's one thing for somebody to say, okay, um, you know, the presidency is a really powerful position, appoint Supreme Court justices. I'm going to hold my nose for Trump um, and vote for him because I think Hillary's just the lesser of the worst of two evils. Um, I didn't agree with that position. I thought that was an unacceptable compromise. I understood it. I understood it. Okay. But what I can't understand is someone going, well, in the face of even worse allegations than Trump had, um, you know, I mean, I just really don't think the church can withstand losing the junior senator from Alabama. You know, at that point, we're just we're just like saying, forget it. Like, just forget this notion that God is the principal defender of his people, that God is the defender of his people. And we've just got to get down in the mud, just get down in the mud for one vote in the Senate. And and to me, that says that screams out, I have no faith here. I have no faith. I'm compromising because I'm desperate. This is like when, when, when the spies are sent into the promised land, right? And like, we can't go yeah. in there. There's giants there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. they're, you know, they, 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 well, no, they're not giants. They just, you know, they look like, and you talk about this fate, you know, with the anxiety like kind of mounts up and, and we, they're giants in the land. And, and that's when you start doing deals with Egyptian. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. You're, you're stampeding over to Egypt. I mean, and, and, and again, these are concepts and their lessons that are taught from birth in evangelical churches. But as we know, as we know, there is a difference between holding to a conviction in the abstract and holding to the conviction in a time of testing. And that's the only time the conviction matters is in the time of testing. Other, all other times, it's just sort of an idea in your head. It's theoretical. It reminds me when I went to, to Iraq and when I was serving in Iraq, you can sit there and you can say to yourself a thousand times that in wartime, I will do X. When the chips are down, I will do X. I will do Y. I will be brave. You have no idea if you're a courageous person until it's tested. You just have no idea. Now you can prepare yourself to be a courageous person. You can learn, you can learn your task. You can pray for, for courage and fortitude. You can, um, be a person who holds to those values and aspires to those values. You can prepare yourself for the time of testing, but you don't never know if you're going to pass it until it occurs. And, and this is what's been so discouraging to me in this time about so many members of the church is it's like they try to prepare themselves for a time of testing. And then they get this really mild test. Like we're not talking a big test here. This wasn't a gun to your head and said, you know, confess a gun to your head that says abandon Christ or die. This was should you kind of stay home and not vote for a person who's credibly accused of pedophilia? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and people are get, still giving that guy standing ovations at, at ch- in churches in Alabama. It's interesting. Um, I might have brought this guy up last time we talked, but this guy, um, Tomas Halik, who is a, a guy I've been reading for a couple of years now, and he's he baptized 32 adults at Easter in the Czech Republic. And he, he became a priest in the underground Catholic church. He knew John Paul. He, I mean, he was a psychotherapist. That was his cover, and he was an underground priest. And you know, then when the Eastern, the Iron, you know, Iron Wall came, Iron Curtain came down, he, you know, now he's got this whole thriving university parish, and he's just, he's, he's a fantastic writer and theologian. He says in one of his books, I think it's the most recent one, um, 
It's, he's written books on faith, hope, and love. The last one is, I want you to be on the God of love. He says, we should not fear any crises. We should only fear being blinded in a crisis by despair, what Kierkegaard calls sickness unto death. The loss of hope, the hope that we are in the company of the one who has the words of eternal life, even when it sometime, is sometimes truly difficult to understand and accept them. When he has spoken one word, he can say a second one too. And then he goes on on the next page, I think, or actually maybe this on the, yeah, I think it's on the next page. He talks about the gay science and he's been, always been a rear of Nietzsche. And he kind of said, he's reflecting on it and he says, God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. I thought, like... the first time I read those words, I was thinking, gosh, this guy, even in the face of Nietzsche, says, well, you know, Nietzsche, he just doesn't go far enough. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, God is dead. That's edgy. But unless you have a God that can endure death, uh, and then if you do, <laughs> then mm-hmm. then these crises of faith are, they they become part of the story, not a threat right. to the story. Well, and that's just biblical truth. I mean, the uh, the wandering in the wilderness, the times of persecution, the um, the wandering, the the drifting away from God, followed in, followed by crying out for His forgiveness and for His mercy. I mean, these things are all. It's um, I, this this is I, I'm reminded of um, um, words from the TV series Battlestar Galactica. Um, that, dude, that that is one of the best serial dramas of all time. I mean, it's definitely top three for me. Oh, totally. I, I could I'm, make I'm, an I'm, argument for number one. I mean, I, I could make an argument for number one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just as aside, my top three in no particular order, Battlestar Galactica, Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones. But that's that's a subject of another. <laughs> yeah, I could agree with all those. Like, I would. I And I used to put the West Wing higher, but that some of that's because it's like a different kind of thing. And as other stuff. Also, we're in the golden age of TV right now. So like stuff, oh. stuff that I would have put like even the it's funny. Sopranos doesn't come up. For either of it us, and that 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 at one time it was the height of things. <laughs> yeah, I wa- we we watched it the whole series recently. It doesn't hold up. It doesn't compare. It's to it's awesome, but like I mean, stuff's coming out all the time. That's just amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if you we've totally gone far afield, but I think if you compared the season one of of True Detective to The Sopranos, True Detective is just better television. That's the worst season two. Why didn't they just get Woody? And Mahat kind of, I mean, that was so good. Like my wife and I, we had that experience with True Detectives, the first episode and a half. So little, you're trying to stay with it. And then once you're hooked, you're hooked and it's amazing. And then then the second season is like, I don't even know what's going on here. It was, yeah. And I'm a Vince, I'm a Vince Vaughn fan. Like, oh, I love Vince Vaughn. And I think he played that role as well as he could. But now, okay, back to the original. By the way, one last Battlestar thing too. Isn't it some of the amazing thing too? Like the original series, just some technologically were just better TV, but also, the cusp of artificial intelligence stuff, you know, the Terminator comes just around that time too, a little just after, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but now it's like you reboot that thing when the nightmare of Terminator, Matrix, and all this. I mean, yeah. it's just it's it, better technology to make it, and also better, uh, and, and also the sort of 
society feeling more fragile and it post mm-hmm. I mean there's just so much the timing too as much as anything I think Battlestar is just it's a it's a recipe it's great it's just greatness it's cinematic well, greatness oh and it's probably the best show I've ever seen as far as exploring seriously and credibly the religious themes oh amazing amazing yeah I know and and yeah I I completely agree I agree and I think the way God is portrayed I mean we don't want to spoil it too much but like at the end with two of the main characters who are kind of romantically interspecies involved and the aim, the, the, the apparition figures tell them, we're not going to, you're done now. You can have a calm life. I think about how often in the Bible were, you know, okay, uh, you patriarch, you're done now. There's nothing more spectacular going to happen. You're just going to live. This was a season where you're kind of, and you know, it's just, it, it, it's so, it, it tells like the epic drama so well. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Kress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah, and what, how we got digressed on that is there's this phrase they use: "All of this has happened before; all of this will happen, happen again. again." Yeah, yeah, and and that's what I think of when I I was I, when they said those words on an episode I was rewatching recently. I thought that's like I feel like we're living through times that we've read about constantly. If you've grown up and if you if you're biblically literate, if you're historically literate, none of this is shocking to God. None of this is surprising to God. None of this is unprecedented. This drifting apart. This fractious culture, all of this is all of this has happened before. All of this will happen again. And it's in this environment exactly that God's people are called to faith, hope, and love. Uh, but that's not a seven-step program for like making sure your kid doesn't want to go see R-rated movies. I mean, that's you know and and that's that's what but but seven that, steps, they, man. I mean, look, if you're gonna market something, three is better. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're going Gothard, you're going like seven volume approach, like a seven book approach for making sure people listen to the right music and watch the right movies. And, but yeah, it, it's, we're facing adversity. Our faith is being tested in adversity. And the question is, are you, are you responding to that adversity by turning more towards God? Or are you responding to that adversity by making what you perceive to be emergency compromises that you never ever thought you would have make, that you would ever make? And a lot of people are making are choosing the latter. It's interesting. Halik 
his second book is called um, Patience with God, and it, the subtitle is The Story of Zacchaeus Continuing in Us. And he, he describes his priesthood as one where he was never, he was always interested in the Zacchaeuses, the ones who want to draw near but are afraid. And for, for, for our non-biblically literate audience here, Zacchaeus, the little man who's a tax collector extorting his people, making his money, skimming off the top. <laughs> he yeah. hated, hated by the, the Jewish people at his homeland, hated by the Romans who are using him. It's just, and Jesus has this transformative encounter with him. And, and and he was, you know, he talks about in the book, he's always been drawn to these people on the margins because he's grew up in the, you know, in the Czech Republic, you know, um, mm-hmm. former Czechoslovakia. But in the the ellipsis on the cover or on the inside um, of the book, he, he's quoting a guy who I actually researched. This guy was a Coptic Christian layman named Adele Bestavros. He was a lawyer. But Bestavros says, patience with others is love. Patience with self is hope. Patience with God is faith. Mm, that's it. That's good stuff right there. And he says in the beginning of the book, he says, you know, what I have, what I find that ideological atheism and Christian fundamentalism have in common is that they are both forms of impatient faith that can't tolerate mystery. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that those mysterious, anxious moments, it's like, well, hey, I got something to sell you. <laughs> you want that to go yeah. away? Here's the seven steps to, uh, you know, make the mystery into something magic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's funny how this it's the smallest and most mundane decisions in life that can sometimes trigger some of the more interesting crises. I mean, so, you know, you're you're right. And I keep going back to raising kids because I think for a, a lot of parents that that triggers some of the biggest existential crises, especially as kids get older and start making their own decisions. And you realize how little control you really have over their their growth and development. You know, some so somewhat when do you when do you give somebody an iPhone? On what terms do they have their iPhone? Uh, what movies do you allow them to watch? When do you let them start dating? No, what we do is we need an Apple chip in their brain with parental control. Yeah. <laughs> so you can just, yeah. okay, they're age four. Now they can see Lion King. Okay, no, no. And that's the time exactly when someone says, well, I don't. And the Bible doesn't say when to give someone an iPhone. It doesn't say when to let somebody start dating. It doesn't say, like, what the curfew should be. And so you, you but you realize those are important decisions and people start looking, OK, where's the authority that I can go to? David, it does say it. The, it was at the Solicitor General or somebody from Alabama said Joseph and Mary, 1430. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible does say it. Right. You know, it's I know, right I'm, there in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. Exactly. And it, 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 I think it was the auditor of Alabama who said that. But, uh, See, look at you. You're, you know, you're Battlestar Galactica and you know it was the auditor. Well, you know, look, I only live 45 miles from the Alabama. Alabama Why don't Board. you change your registration? Let's write a write-in campaign. David <laughs> French for Senator. It's two yeah. years of your life. Yeah, yeah. Then I'll always be the guy who is floated when all hope is lost, just like the, uh, the presidential campaign. But the, the, um, yeah, it's just, we, we, we look for certainty. We can't find certainty. And so we just manufacture it. And, and it's in that, in that uncertainty, you know, as, as I understand and as I read the scriptures, it's in that uncertainty that the response is, man, that's when I turn to God. That's exactly when I turn to God. That's exactly when I act in faith, hope and love. And that's, and, and it means, you know, but what it ends up doing is I, I make maybe different decisions than somebody else makes. Uh, we have different rules than other families have. And, you know, there are a lot of communities really actually where that's an uncomfortable thing. Um, and I get it. I understand it. I just don't think it's right. 
Yeah, and it's interesting too. I, I was thinking along the lines of the control stuff, and I thought, you know, I was thinking about this trip that Donald Trump just came back from, and you know, saying, "Oh, no one was treated like uh, we were." I mean, Japan, the Philippines, and President Xi's great political victory. I'm like, great. Yeah, Putin has a great victory too. Ninety-eight percent of the vote. Like, who gets to? Ki- All right, you're going to be at the center. You come here. You vote for another party. But he's like, they were. They rolled out the red carpet. They do it. You know. And it's one of these things where, like, somebody said, I think Mike Barnacle said, well, what happens is they learn from the Saudis. He loves parades. He loves the show. You do that and then pick his pocket, right? Yeah. Like, you know, get, you know, get all these like trade deals kind of favorably thing. And he feels great. But it's almost like for evangelicals, the opposite happens. Like, Trump kind of comes and, all right, Jerry, Jared, head well, going into real estate development, maybe Trump would be number two, and Liberty University. I say I went to the best school, Penn, but Liberty's right there, maybe Liberty. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's, he kind of does sometimes to evangelicals what world leaders do to him. Like, yeah. It, it, make, we feel good. We've got all, you know, we've got the, I mean, Billy Graham learned pretty early on how hollow that stuff is and where he kind of backed away from those relationships because yes. he realized he got manipulated pretty easily. Well, you know, one thing that you have to realize about the evangelical world is it has a persistent inferiority complex and, and sort of like that it's been walled out of the halls of power, it's been walled out of elite, the elite academy, it's been walled out of Hollywood, it's been walled out of all the elite institutions. Everyone looks down on us. People, you know, think we're dumb, we're rubes or whatever. And so it is one of, one of the one of the interesting a- aspects of that is it has placed a premium on access. So, you know, it it means so much more to some evangelicals to be invited to the Oval Office or to, a, you know, a, 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 a one hour meeting at the old executive office building than it would to, uh, to other people who are less insecure. And so it and politicians have learned to play on that so well. I mean, they have learned that you just get some evangelicals in the room where it happens, you know, to paraphrase the um, Aaron Burr song and in Hamilton, get, get the evangelicals in the room where it happens. And you got yourself some evangelical friends. Whereas I think a lot of the left, the folks on the left who are activists on the left, who are used to occupying the halls of Harvard, they're used to being at the elite parts of Hollywood, they're a lot less impressed by a lunch at the White House. They're like, yeah, this is uh these are, this is a nice ham and biscuit, but um, what you going to do for me? Yeah. Yeah. And, and evangelicals are more like, man, this is the best ham and biscuit I've ever had. And can I get a selfie with you, Mr. President? And Hey, now let's pray and let's get a, let's get a picture of us laying hands on you. And there you, you know, and it's like, well, look at me, look at me, look at, I've arrived. And <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, it, and it's it, it's easy to manipulate. It really is. You know, it's interesting. Have, have you ever listened to William Crystal's podcast conversations? Yeah. I, I started listening. It's funny because uh, some of my, you know, I, I live in Philadelphia and I have I've obviously a lot of blue state kind of liberal friends. I'm always like, well, have you listened to, you check out the Liberty Files or have you read this in the National Review or, you know, Bill Crystal's podcast are like, what's going on? <laughs> I was like, yeah. Blame it on Oppenheimer. He started me on David French. French is a gateway <laughs> drug. <laughs> and, then, and then you go, but, um, you know, he had Erwin Steltzer on, a kind of conservative, um, Jewish economist. And their conversation was fantastic, as many of them are. And so are the conversations. I've told a lot of people, your podcast is so interesting because it's, it's just, uh, it, it, whether or not you're a conservative, it's just, there's so much truth there. I, I often judge someone like, if I ideologically disagree with you, 
how much could I still learn? You know, like if, right. I, if I don't have to be in the echo chamber to really kind of, but they were talking and they had all the, I mean, just fascinating. Like, you know, Crystal was saying, well, the problem is the DC beltway and you're thinking about the budget and the budget. We review taxes every 10 years and the budget policy. And then this has to be part of reconciliation. All these are constructs, right? Mm-hmm. And they just started thinking creatively. And, and, and Seltzer was like, well, I'm for a carbon tax, but I'm a, I'm a skeptic on global warming. But then I'm a skeptic of my own skepticism. So what if I'm wrong? Well, I don't want more <laughs> regulators. So this is the best market-based uh, solution I could come to hedge my bets because it'll cause the least damage. But they were yeah. they were just free thinking. And Crystal often does this. But I wonder, because you were talking about the insecurities of evangelicals. And again, we're on this Reformation um, 500th anniversary. And this, I think, maybe in public life, the thing Luther's passion has to offer us is if you're justified by faith alone, then your ideas don't have to do your identity work. Mm-hmm. And you can really be an intellectual. I mean, because, you know, it, it's like the parable or the story in, in the Gospels where Jesus is sleeping in the boat and the storm comes up and the disciples are waking up. You're, you, what's, you're, we're going to die. And he's kind of sh- surprised, like, well, I'm in the boat. I mean, it's going to it calms the storm. And sort of like if Jesus is in the boat, if, if, if your faith is secured in transcendent at a transcendent reality that's not kind of just susceptible every single sling an arrow of outrageous fortune then then you can even in in choppy waters have a kind of peace but if not even on a clear sea with perfect sun you're gonna think well what if the squall blows up i mean we Mm -hmm. got we got to make provisions for when it was you know you there's no peace there right right and there is no peace i mean there that that's one of the things that is so remarkable and it's you know when i talked about the the faith angle to this there is no peace. There is a lot of panic. There's a lot of panic. And and if I could say, like, if you were going to say, okay, David, you have one sentence to describe to a, a secular liberal person from the Northeast or from the West Coast to explain evangelical thinking in the heartland. What's that one sentence that you would, I would say something like this. Evangelicals in the heartland believe that you want to extinguish their way of life and are acting accordingly. And, and that's sentence. Um, and, and that's how you understand what's happening. That's how you understand what's happening. And my response is evangelicals in the heartland need to understand that no Northeastern, no Northeasterner ever born or West Coaster ever born can extinguish, can extinguish your way of life because your identity and your church are secured by the creator of the universe and not by the government of the United States of America. And that's my answer. That's my one, you know, two sentence or whatever answer to that one sentence predicament. But if you're not, if you don't have that answer, if, or if you don't believe that is that answer is actually true, then it begins to explain an awful lot about American politics right now. Did you see Peter Beinhardt's recent piece? I think it was in the Atlantic. Republican is not a synonym for racist. Yes. Yeah. I, I thought that was fantastic. And when yeah. you're saying like, the look, conservatives view bigotry in terms of intent. Liberals view it in terms of impact. And so that's why you cut Medicaid as a conservative because you don't think you can afford it, but it disproportionately affects people of color. So he's like, we don't need to agree on that. Right. But he mm-hmm. just basically says, but, you know, liberals we could tone down the rhetoric and this is a, a, a liberal jewish guy this is not a conservative he used to be the editor of new republic right i mean like yeah, he's, this yeah, is absolutely um he's saying you know liberals don't abuse your cultural power you know like like if you label someone a bigot right now it has more power than i mean it, it has some power if trump says you're un-american for kneeling but not the kind of thing if someone's really labeled a bigot yeah and, and i thought about that mutually like you know it, just these kinds of 
um, conversations dialing down rhetoric and saying we don't have to agree on everything, but we can agree to like, you know, I love the, the uh, one example he uses when he he's talking about Breitbart and people saying that this article about Crystal was renegade Jew was anti-Semitic. Well, it was written by a Jewish person. And he's like, you can think it's silly, the argument, stupid, you know, even uh, completely wrong and awful. But he, it's one Jew critiquing another Jew for not supporting Trump over Israel policy. <laughs> it can't be anti-Semitic. Right. But the right. cultural power move is, well, let's throw that in there because mm-hmm. a lot of people will dismiss it just if we can get them to believe they're anti-Semitic. Well, and the other thing that that does is it makes the it makes the, the it drains the word of meaning. So if everybody's a bigot, nobody's a bigot. Um, and so. So then you can't actually call out real bigotry because nobody will believe it. And, and I, I saw this. So when my family was subjected to all this alt-right abuse um, during the Trump campaign and um, very vicious, vicious, super vicious attacks on our family. Um, and when we were subjected to that and I said we were attacked by racists all over Twitter, people said, um, no, no, stop using that leftist term. and and my response was, what, what else would you call somebody who like photoshops a picture of my daughter as a slave, my youngest daughter? Uh, and for our or, listeners, don't you, you adopted uh, a, a black, your daughter's black? Ethiopia. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So my yeah, your youngest is adopted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, well, how else are you going to describe that? I mean, what, what adjective would you use to describe things like that? Um, and, but people had become so used to, um, are, you know, the argument that, well, if you'll oppose Obamacare, you're, you're a racist, you know, if you, you name it. And so that is something that, um, causes people to, it drains the words of meaning. Um, then, and so that's why you have to be careful and accurate with our rhetoric. We have to be very careful about it. And, and I know for myself, I, I, as all of this has happened, I thought, man, you know, there were times in my own writing and my own speeches where I just overstated my case. I went too far. Um, you get caught up in the partisan moment and you start to think, OK, what did I do that contributed to this? You know, whatever whatever tiny influence I had, what did I contribute to this? It, it causes some real soul searching. Yeah, it's funny. Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, I think it's there. He says that like when people are, are engaging in contentious debate on any issue, right? Usually, psychologically, their rhetoric isn't to persuade the other side. It's to assure your side that you're part of the tribe. Right. <laughs> and so it's just not. And he says, you know, well, the best thing is use don't focus on the message, but the messenger. So, you know, I always tell uh, liberals, if you want conservatives to take climate change seriously, have generals talk about it, you know, which I mean, you know, because then it's like, oh, wait, this person's not some lefty wacko. This is, you know, uh, you know, but when you can find people that uh, who are are people that you trust, it's like the opposite of excessive rhetoric. If you can find, yeah. you know, people that are, are, are trustworthy as emissaries, uh, we just get to a lot more productive conversation. Yeah. You know, one thing, this is my my pessimistic cynicism coming out is we are now so polarized that even if you come from a trusted source, because I've, I've, even if you come from a trusted position, if you depart from the tribe, you lose your trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 really, you know, that's one of the the most jolting things about um, the last two years. So, you know, so I spend twenty years as a lawyer litigating for First Amendment uh, for free speech and religious liberty on college campuses across the country. You know, been involved, formed pro-life, the first dedicated pro-life student club or one of the first ever at Harvard Law School. I mean, I was 
uh, represented Tea Party organizations and their lawsuits against the IRS. I mean, you just go down the line like I've been doing conservative stuff for 20 years. And but for some folks, as soon as I said, no, I can't I can't support Donald Trump. It's as if I had no, no lifetime, lifetime Democrat from New York. (laughs) Yes. Lifetime Democrat who has said that Planned Parenthood does wonderful things. Um, and, and all of a sudden I have no credibility or standing 20 plus years of work and I have no credibility or standing at all anymore because, and I'm no longer a trusted source because the tribal impulse is so, so, so strong that you deviate from it. It's not, it's not, oh, wait, I've respected David's point of view. Let me hear him out. It's the people have spoken and you need to get on the train or off the train. Or as one radio host told me, David, when are you going to put on the red jersey and play ball? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. see that you see this with Bernie Sanders, right, who supported um, in, the, in, the ele- in some elections after he lost some pro-life Democrats in mayoral race or pro. Yeah, some pro-life Democrats uh, mm-hmm. who were kind of populist economics and pro. And people were like, oh, my gosh, we yeah. can't. T- I mean, it's it, it just, you know, here's a guy that everybody loved. And all of a sudden you challenge a sacred cow and say, Hey, well, we can, you know, we can, we have room for the, for this discussion, you know, and we can, we can focus on what we agree on and, and we disagree on, we can keep talking. And that was anathema. I mean, it was, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I know. I followed that whole thing closely. I mean, it was even like, uh, Democrats were saying you can't support a moderately pro-life Democrat in a mayor's race. Like what does a mayor have to do with abortion policy? Exactly nothing. But it was like, that's thought crime. That's thought crime. And, and again, it's this tribalistic impulse that's so incredibly strong right now in part. And all the data shows this. It's this negative polarization. It's the, you dislike the other side so much that you don't want to give them one stinking inch on anything because to give them an inch is to essentially give them a mile and you're going to lose and you're going to, and you're going to compromise and you're going to, and, and, but the funny thing is, that can either happen around ideas, so like the the abortion question, or it can happen around people. Right. It's I, yeah. Large. So like you have these ideas that no one will give an inch on until your champion is somebody who's given on those ideas. Then it's like, well, oh, all that ideological rigidity I just showed for the last eight years, that's yesterday's news. Today's news is Donald Trump. It's It's whatever actually expresses the will of the tribe. So a lot of uh, the constitutional conservatism of the Tea Party era under Obama wasn't true constitutional conservatism. It was just how opposition to Obama was being expressed. Mm-hmm. And so then when the opposition to the Democrats became expressed, not through constitutional conservatism, but through Trump as populism, then, well, that's where Trump is populist at that point, because that's the de- that's the need of the tribe. You've taken a lot of time. Can I just ask you? I mean, I've taken a lot of your time is what I mean. Um, can I just ask you two more questions, though, that have been? Sure. Okay. One is personal. One is kind of political. By personal, I mean it's a personal question. So I watch Bill Maher like every week. I love that show. And I love watching it live if I can. Like, for, so it's, yeah. No one does live TV anymore. You were on Bill Maher. You were great. Uh, I, I thought right, <laughs> I thought you were great. I mean, you were on with Van Jones, right? Yep. Betsy, and, Betsy Woodruff, yeah. And then out came um, Joy Bayer, right? Was she on yep. that episode? I'll tell you, and honestly, like I was not super impressed with Joy Bear. Um, like Van mm-hmm. Jones is kind of saying, "We look, the, I like to talk to everybody. We can't dismiss people that are different parts of the country." And I feel like she's dismiss them. Wait, like it was such a vitriolic. 
um, message. But so can I just share, what was it like? Is that, that was that the first time you were on the show? Yeah, first time. And um, he greeted you on the way. I was like, oh, I was like, I said, my babe, David French is on. I know that guy. And he's like, hey, David, how are you? So what was that like? Like, did he talk to you before in the green room or was it a, a little bit unusual because he had to dash uh, out to uh, right after the show because normally he kind of hangs out uh, after the show. But to, a couple of things about it. One, it's the most hospitable staff of producers and writers and and everything else that you'll ever meet because they really treat you very nicely and very well. That's number one. Number two, there's a very unique energy um, in that room because you've got Bill Maher, who's a comedian. You've got a very lively partisan crowd. It's live television. It's <clears throat> let's just say it's not meet the press. And uh, and so there's a lot of energy. And then the other thing that's different is unlike, say, um, you know, like a meet the press environment where Chuck Todd says, David, I, you know, what do you think of this, David? And then he'll turn to, you know, say Dana Milbank from The Washington Post. What do you think of this, Dana? You know, it's your turn, your turn, your turn. And there it's a jump ball. So here's the topic. And if you don't say anything, you won't say anything in the whole. He won't he won't come to you. Um, and so you've got to interject and get your point out there. Um, so it's just but it's exactly the kind of thing that. Anytime you do something new for the first time and you do it and you, you, you usually spend like the next 24 to 48 hours going, yeah, if I had to do it all over again, I could have said this or I could have said this. Um, but Bill, Bill was very gracious. I mean, he was a great host. He really was. He, um, he was, uh, you know, as I said, the whole, the whole thing from top to bottom, they were super hospitable, super yeah, hospitable. He seems like a consummate professional in that regard. I mean, he really does seem like he's a, I mean, he can be an adversarial personality. Yeah. But but he does seem like a good host. I mean, it, it, like it does seem like a people generally enjoy the experience when you're watching it, it. It looks that way. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy the experience. Um, But yeah, I mean, that was my only time. I can only speak to my my one experience. But, uh, you know, as I said, they they were uh, they were great to work with. OK, my second question is politically just like we had a like a, a you know, an off year lit election, which is a couple states. I mean, Virginia, I mean, maybe people look at that as a big deal because it's sort of purplish and trends and things like that. But like coming away from the last election, like, do you, do you have insights? I mean, do you have thoughts? I mean, what was your reaction to it? I mean, it, it, people, I mean, obviously a lot of people say, oh, it's, you know, people love the sort of horse race yeah. and, the, and the wave elections and things like that. But I mean, how seriously do you take it? Do other kind of movement thinking conservatives take it? Are there lessons you're taking away? Things like that? Well, I mean, a couple of things. One, uh, there's a pattern of these particular elections sort of running against the party in power in the White House. So you can look at it in one sense and say, well, this is sort of true to form. The other the, the other thing, though, was there was really big turnout in Virginia. There was really big turnout against um, Gillespie in Virginia. And and I think it illustrated, obviously, this is the most obvious point that there is real energy on the left. And so where there are large concentrations of progressives, you're going to get big turnout. Now, um, the interesting thing is. I, if I had to bet money today, does the does the house switch hands in 2018? I would very tentatively say yes. But um, the fact of the matter is, huge turnout in progressive urban enclaves and even in progressive suburban enclaves is going to have limited effect. Um, it's not like you get an extra house seat because you win a house seat that you won by a hundred thousand votes by a hundred and fifty thousand. Um, 
the fact of the matter is you still got to make inroads in communities where, you know, the hardcore progressive message doesn't fly. And you just have to have the bottom not fall out, right? I mean, this is Ronald Bernstein was on Crystal's podcast. He said, look, Obama was the first guy that won and won with a big share of the vote without getting tons of uh, non-college educated whites. But he got so many college educated whites along with everybody else. He said, but, you know, you can't let the bottom fall out. Like, and he was like, his perspective for Democrats would be just as a journalist. He said, you know, the Bernie people saying, let's go after the populace. He's like, Trump has a stranglehold on them. You're not going to, he's like, but you can improve a little bit. You cannot let the bottom fall out. But if you can, and this is probably what happened, I would guess, in places like Virginia, you got the white college educated people way out, right? And then you don't lose as badly with working class, you know, non-college educated whites. Like that kind of thing. If, if they, if, you know, but I always think, if I was sitting in Republican leadership now and I, I wanted good news, I was like, well, I mean, we have the Democrats <laughs> who can yeah. seem to mess anything up. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's so difficult to predict because, as you know, the news cycle is moving so fast now. I mean, think about this. I mean, there was this terror attack in Manhattan yeah. not too many days ago and nobody's talking about it. You know, we're uh, just about, what, eight, nine days removed from this horrible massacre in a church in Texas. Nobody's talking. I mean, things are happening so fast that we we just cannot predict. And the outrage culture moves its targets so quickly. It's incredibly difficult to predict. I mean, think about the 2016 election. So you went from the the Billy Bush tape, which sent the um, Trump uh, campaign into a spiral. And then two weeks later, that's like almost forgotten because there's the Comey letter about, you know, reopening the investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails. And it's just like one it's it's one of the first news cycles where your scandal is just replacing scandal on in the news cycle. Outrage is replacing outrage. And could that mean that by 2018, voters are just sort of exhausted with it all and and want to toss the bums out? Or does it mean by in 2018, there's some sort of outrage cycle implicating the Dems? You know, I don't know. But one thing. And and Trump is excellent at this. I mean, manipulating that scandal cycle. I mean, he he is just a phenom with that stuff. Well, I mean, he turned he took a dwindling protest of like eight or nine football players kneeling and turned it into a month long national uh, argument. I mean, um, that dominated the headlines. But but here, you know, here's one thing the Democrats have to realize, because I hear all about gerrymandering, gerrymandering, gerrymandering. Look, guys, if you keep living piled up on top of each other in progressive urban enclaves, even if you draw in, uh, congressional districts according to their natural boundaries, you're going to have a huge issue. <laughs> you're going to have a huge issue. And a New York Times call, I forget who wrote this in the New York Times, but they said, look, if Democrats want to win more House seats, they may, need to move out of Brooklyn. And and but and so these are larger cultural forces are in play. This is sorting. This is mixing. This is matching. And it's not mixing. It's matching. It's people matching like with like and people living where they want to live. And when they live where they want to live, they tend to live on top of each other. And and uh, so that that's one thing that's helping polarize our country. And this is the challenge of the gerrymandering case, right? Wisconsin, right? Because you do have examples where, I mean, the Wisconsin people did, you know, the packing and cracking and all that stuff. But but then also there's just sorting that goes on. Yeah. And so what's the difference? And I mean, I mean, Kennedy, right, the last time this came up said, you know, if you can come up with a metric, that's not where the, where the, where the you know, the medicine isn't worse than the disease. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, do you think, how do you think that will go? How Do you think that? Ger- I, think, I think that the gerrymandering case will go 
um, again, uh, I think that, that the Supreme Court will rule against the Wisconsin system. And, and again, I'm just basically saying that because of I'm just reading tea leaves from oral argument, which is always dangerous. Um, I, I, I think it's close, but I think they'll rule against the Wisconsin system. But then I think that any replaced any replacement system that goes with natural sort of natural boundaries is not going to change things very much at all. Yeah, right. It'll, it, yeah, because it's still going to there's still the sorting issue that will happen. I mean, yeah. it, it'll solve extreme cases like. Yeah, but but the it's funny, too. The thing that drives me intellectually up the wall is that like when, you know, uh, like Gorsuch, I think, said, you know, oh, I mean, this is gobbledygook social science. How do we know this works? I'll tell you how we know it works, because. The scientists that came, social scientists came with the data. That's who the people used to gerrymander the things right. and get it reliably, right. you know, fixed. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, here's here's a good way to put it in ways that, in a way that people can understand. So let's imagine you're trying to um, in, introduce a more proportional representation compared to ideological makeup um, in into Wisconsin. So then, what you would have is a, a reverse gerrymander because then you would have like virtually every district would snake up into Milwaukee a little bit. So whether it's a, you know, a, 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 a district of dairy farmers and small towns, well then that doesn't have enough Democrats. So let's carve out another chunk of Milwaukee uh, or let's carve out chunks. Of so even if we had an algorithm doing it, yeah, this is the thing. There's no. Perf- I mean, I mean, the guy that has come up with the system, making the cracking, packing thing, and the efficiency quote. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's pretty good at showing deliberate extreme stuff. Yeah, but but yeah, I I think you're right. This I listened to this thing. I think five thirty eight did about it. I listened to it like three times, <laughs> and I I thought you know this is hard because I think this is a real problem. But the 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 problem is how do you redress it? Yeah. Without like, you know, without sort of making something like you're saying, that's just where you're not doing reverse social engineering. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that, and and you then you'll have the court challenges and you'll have maps up that where you have these crazy looking districts, how, you know, you'll have you'll have uh, this starts all the way down in southern Illinois and like snakes up the interstate <laughs> to get up to to get up to Chicago, you know. And and you're thinking, what what is that? Well, it's proportional representation, you know. And so there are a lot of things that we look to for sort of a magic solution to what ails us in the polarization world. And but when you examine them, they might like help on the margins, but they don't address the fundamentals. And, and that the fundamentals are far more cultural, um, socio sociological, cultural, political, religious than they are this tweak, that tweak, this tweak. Yeah, and you get it in your piece that was published yesterday. I mean, the the thing that saves us from a kind of reactionary fundamentalism or ideological atheism, like Halleck talks about, is patience and mystery and and, and acceptance of God being bigger than us, gracious and also mysterious. And I think that's the fundamental that would keep us together in a lot of these really anxiety-provoking realities. Indeed. David, thanks for doing this, and I hope you get on Bill Maher again and lots of other shows. It's it's fun for me because I know you a little bit. I'm like, ah, I know that guy. Well, if I get on it again, I'll do better next time. But, you did uh, great, man. You did great. First. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please 
takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, give and take that fireside.fm. You can find the all the information. You can find a link to yeah. his most recent National Review piece, The Enduring Appeal of Creepy Christianity, in the show notes. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.